Welcome to the ITAM Reviews monthly radiocast with your host, Martin Thompson. Joining him on the sofa of software are regulars Barry, the Sam Mercenary Pilling, and the man known as the Sam Beast, David Foxen. Then on the couch of contention is Jeff, welcome to the Velodrome, Worsley, and he is joined with Rory, Process Guard, Canavan. And lastly, in the wing back of wickedness, is the soft, cuddly, and courteous Danny Beck. Moderating today for fairness and behavior is Libby, the item wench, Phillips. Please note all opinions are personal opinions and don't flag the item review or respective employees. Other opinions are available. Join us at our Wisdom UK conference with a focus on taking ITAM beyond IT on the 5th and 6th of June at Twickenham Stadium in London. To get 20% off early bird and standard ticket prices, use code RADIO20 at the checkout. Welcome to the ITAM Review podcast. My name is Martin Thompson from the ITAM Review and uh, we have a... a Great group today, Barry. Good morning, Danny. Morning, guys. David. Hello, Rory. Hi, everyone. Rich. Hi, everyone. And not forgetting, uh, new new guest Stuart. Good morning, hello. and hello to the internet. <laughs> is, it your, is it your first time on the internet, Stuart? <laughs> it's my first time on the internet. Yes. Welcome. <laughs> Well, hope you had a warning from your mother. I'm proud to have shared that moment with you. Thank, thanks for uh, inviting me on. I would be nothing without you, Martin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, industry news, loads going on um, in terms of mergers, acquisitions, and money being spent in the, in the ITAM space. I'm just going to rattle off a few, and then I'd love to get your feedback, so... We've got Livingston, UK-based SAM provider, acquiring Cywell, which is a US-based SAM provider. Um, Livingston is is supported by the Kylar Group. Would you, the private equity group, I think they're called, um, or venture capitalists, I'm not sure. Uh, that same group, Kylar Group, also invested in Derive Logic this month when news came out. Um, we also saw the, the um, large... Um, I think predominantly, Comparex were predominantly German, weren't they, or Swiss? I can't remember. DAC region, anyway. But the Comparex were large LA, um, bought by Software One. And the Comparex brand died this month. So that's gone, gone to the big software shop in the sky. And now it's all Software One. And then finally, we had uh, Flexera um, with mixed messages. One half saying they're doing really, really well. And the other half saying they've closed part of APAC. So all sorts going on. What what do we think of, of these industry movers and shakers? I think it's quite interesting. I think, um, I mean, the Carlisle Group, so much diversity in, in what they put their money in. Um, obviously, they put a, a load into Livingston last year, I think it was. And I think looking at the Derive Logic thing is quite interesting as well, because it looks like that they're really putting their money into these, these kind of SAM um, initiatives with Livingston and then see, well, through Livingston, through Carlisle, and, and then Derive uh, coming in as well. So it's, uh, I think it's quite interesting. Um, I'd be interested to see if um, some of these vendors and tool vendors that are going to be heavily funded, what this actually means to the end product that the customers have. Because it's, you know, a lot of companies are buying lots of little companies and incorporating them into their own tools. But then there are other tool providers that were previously like market leaders that have gone a bit quiet on latest releases and 
product updates and you know sam items moving on we need more what's an example of that what's the one somebody's gone quiet i mean we all we, we've seen the headlines right there, there's one or two in particular sam tool vendors that um don't appear to have made any new releases recently um there doesn't seem to be anything much on the roadmap coming out um you know the weather-based one um you know normally they're you know really hot on new releases and shouting about new um, features and new apis and stuff but it's just been quiet whereas flexier and other tam tool vendors are actually you know buying little security firms or SaaS or infrastructure as a service, whatever, these are the providers and incorporating them to their tools. To your point, David, you're saying a couple of a couple of sound tools are maybe missing a beat there. So yeah, I just think, you know, with um, technologies like ServiceNow investing heavily in the ITAM space uh, and hosting webinars and doing press releases on all of their new features and what's coming up and what the roadmap is. Other key leaders in the sound tool market have gone a bit quiet recently and there doesn't seem to be any um, development or new features coming out or fixes for previous stuff um, especially when you know people like snow for example had um, they were very vocal in previous releases of you know mm. look at what we're mm. bringing now it's, it's gone quiet on that front whereas other people are, are really shouting like flex era shouting a lot service now are shouting a lot it's you know the, the market's obviously moving on and it seems that maybe some technology vendors aren't you know we don't know what's going on behind closed doors but it doesn't seem like they're keeping up with the service nows and flex eras who do you think if service now do well who do you think's the most likely to suffer because of that at the moment having looked at who flex era acquiring i'd say potentially snow but aren't snow more mid-market play they're sort of smaller than the average service now well, customer aren't they or, or not service now every market aren't they yeah Pretty much. yeah um, yeah, I guess just coming back to those acquisition thing, I mean, Ivanti is probably the the one that everyone looked at. Went, how on earth are they going to cobble all that together into something? But they, I think they have. I mean, they certainly have taken. I think the best bits out of all of the acquisitions to make it into something that they they can now take to market. I think it's actually quite compelling. And maybe it, this is more of an item into. ITSM play within the market rather than just a pure for kind of software license optimization. I, I wouldn't disagree with David in terms of, I think um, Flexera have gone down an acquisitional route um, and have shown that to be pretty successful, I guess up to a point, certainly from a um, functionality perspective. Um, and maybe um, the lull before the storm is that Snow will either make an acquisition or something else will happen within their within their market yeah absolutely I'm not, absolutely i don't know what's going on behind closed doors they could be working on something um immense and keeping their cards close to their chest i still think it's a great tool i'm just saying in terms of mm. shouting about um new releases and what they're talking dueling and stuff it just seems they used to be one of the ones that was always promoting you know even a, a small release that was a connector to another itsm yeah. tool they'd, they'd really promote it it's gone it's just gone a bit quiet the integration is the next evolution, though, isn't it? Um, I mean, obviously, ServiceNow, as we've commented on, are going for it in a big way now. They're sort of trying to really sell the integrated toolset dream. And as Stuart was saying, Avanti have done it, uh, although not quite as noisily. Now, I've, I've used Avanti's various tools um, with clients, and 
you know, where they're actually trying to sell the entire integrated tool set drinks, you've got your service management functions, you've got your CMDB, they have an asset management database module, they've got their software license optimizer. They've even now got a, a, a patching tool as well called Shadow. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, yeah, so they, it's, took, it's they took a whole host of. Um, so I was just going to say it took a whole host of things. I mean, when um, we spoke to to our guys at Avanti just after the WannaCry, and they had this kind of patch solution, which was taking a bit out of Shavlik, a bit out of Lumension, and, and a bit out of Landesk, and creating this kind of very quick to market patch yeah. um, solution. So yeah, it's, I think at, at, at the initiation time there was like eleven brands into one. Um, now I think it is it is a, a genuine kind of multi. Um, multi-service level kind of technology option and platform. Yeah, and, and I think actually now where once upon a time the market was all about, you know, um, let us sell, sell you your sell you our software licensing tool that give you a great view of this and, and all that sort of marketing stuff. Now it's all about, you know, how can we actually help you achieve your business outcomes uh, mm -hmm. without actually causing you the maximum of disruption? Because a lot of organizations are getting on top of software asset management and software license management now. So for me, the proposition is now about, well, actually, how do we add to that? How do we, how do we actually execute? Talk, stand above and actually work across your entire IT piece? Yeah. I think, I think the, the way the market is now, an order, the order qualifier, or previously the order winner used to be, we can generate your ELP. Now that's an order qualifier. And, and the other stuff, like bolting into information security or service management, that's that's where the cross-sell or the upsell is going to result yeah. from. So it's, yeah. it's what more you can do, not, not just, you know, Absolutely, here's your real. Yeah. Sounding like a sales take that data <laughs> and build upon it. <laughs> uh, Rory Canavan, available for RFP construction <laughs> services. Christenings, weddings, and uh, opening RFP. supermarkets <laughs> while I'm at it, yeah. Other consultants are available. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, the other the other element I think from the um, cadence of releases that I think you know we saw that Snow replatformed I think on version eight was it or seven, but Sarah did it in I think 2014 15. So they went from this kind of I guess it's kind of mirroring the the Windows 10 style evergreen small incremental updates rather than the big migration um, kind of project style. Uh, upgrades that people used to do in the past to, to have those kind of smaller, incremental, easier to apply upgrades. Agile man. No one can beat Thank you. Man. <laughs> Stuart, you've um, uh, pulled out some news about SAP and HANA, and people, I, mean, I thought HANA was uh, <coughs> SAP's future. Um, but it appears that you're sharing some stuff whereby people are maybe shifting stuff back to on-premise. Do you want to share just the Yeah, there's just been that? a couple of um, things I spotted in the, uh, in the news, which is basically Twitter, CRN, and LinkedIn, if I'm honest. Um, but, yeah, I think, um, I think the HANA thing has been a bit of a, a strange one because I think you see them kind of, shouting out they're the biggest cloud vendor in the world. I think Bill McDermott said that a little while ago and everyone was sort of looking a bit strangely going, really? Um, I think predominantly that's um, based on success factors being their kind of HR in the cloud, um, which does have you know, huge, huge amounts of users. But um, I think some of their um, 
some of their roadmaps are, are kind of inconsistent with cloud. I think one, I think I, I think I saw it six months ago, one particular new release on the roadmap was actually going to be more on-premise related rather than in the cloud. So, um, and HANA was obviously the big, big answer to their database. And I think, that, but they, I think they tried to position it as more than just the database, but the platform, the, the cloud side and, you know, all, all things to all, all men and women indeed. Um, and now I think perhaps there might be just reining back on that. So I think IDC have just done a, a report where they demonstrate 2018-2019 that actually the on-premise private cloud, 38% 2018 and only up to 43% on 2019. And the hosted private cloud only, only marginally up. So whilst we see a lot of people going down a, a more cloud-focused public cloud focused approach I think I guess there's still those security concerns there's still those kind of operational concerns that maybe people are still doing dipping the toe in the water I mean okay obviously other other guys are going full in and, and making a success of it but you know it doesn't suit every um, every organization in fact I think our we've got a cloud center of excellence lead and he used the phrase cloud is for every one but not for everything i think it was which i thought was quite quite a good succinct description of of, of the public cloud i think i think there's some as well uh, some organizations that are forbidden from using public cloud through uh, regulatory compliance and, and so on and so forth i mean um I, I can't speak for the uk market but certainly when we did the um us conference in florida there was a lady in one of my sessions who worked for uh, a public utility and um, they were prohibited by federal law from actually putting certain types of data and certain types of applications into the public cloud. I don't think it, it's peaking. I think people moving things back from the cloud, it's because people put the wrong things in the cloud. I don't think anyone has put something in the cloud and it's worked really well, but then someone's gone, nah, move it back. They've put things in the cloud that should never have been there and are now realising yeah, you know, not everything works, and it will be a hybrid model. No one's going to be 100%. Um, but I think, you know, like we saw yesterday, today, Apple are spending $30 million a month on AWS, uh, and they've committed to $1.5 billion spend over the course of their agreement. Um, so, you know, you've got, got Snap at $1.1 billion, uh, Pinterest at, I don't know, 500 million or something, lift at 350 million. I, I think it's it's still in its ascendancy, and I think it will be for a long time. But there's so much waste that um, there's going to be, you know, five or ten years of it all all settling and people realizing what works and what doesn't. I think. Yeah, I, I agree with Rich. I think um, I don't think it's peaked yet. I think there's much more to go yet. Although. I also agree with the point you made about hybrid is is most likely going to be the uh, outcome of uh, cloud migrations. I think where people are moving them back, I mean, it, it is all about cost, isn't it? And, and we know there's lots of organisations out there that have simply got costs wrong. They haven't right-sized applications. They maybe don't look at the licensing costs of migrating on-premise licences to the cloud. You know, all, all sorts of reasons, consuming too much in the way of uh, VMs and, and how much their monthly billing is, and maybe that's where they're migrating some stuff back. 
But yeah, I mean, you can come back to what there's always going to be some that won't. There's going to be certain types of data and application that just won't get migrated because they're either not right for the cloud or or there's a really, really good reason uh, potentially around security why it can't actually be migrated. Could be interdependencies as well. Yeah, um, and I you know, I, 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 I go along with everything you guys have just said. Yeah, you know, it's sometimes, and then we'll probably, I'll let Rory have a go in a minute about the process side of things and the governance side. I think that's that's really the key bit because actually this doesn't become a CIO problem. It kind of moves into a CFO problem because suddenly they've gone, yeah, we've put it all in the cloud. It's working brilliantly. And then the CFO comes and knocks on your door and says, why are we spending twice what we did on licensing? Yeah. On yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think because there's this whole concept that I'm, I'm sort of getting into at the minute called FinOps, which is basically DevOps for finance. Yeah. Um, and it's this thing of just cutting, sometimes spending more in the cloud than you do on premises makes sense. You know, if you spend twice as much in the cloud and it makes your product four times better and you earn six times more revenue than you're spending extra in the cloud, then that's brilliant. And, and it's this concept of cloud spend going up can be a good thing, but you have to balance it against like what you're spending it on uh, and what you're actually getting. You know, like if you're Netflix, if, if it increase, you know, reduces your latency and that means that you get an extra million subscribers, then, you know, keep on spending. But if that difference to your latency doesn't make any difference, then there's no point. Uh, and it absolutely goes, goes to your point of it sitting under the CFO uh, and it becoming a, you know, it's not just the case of this is more than that or this is less than that. It has to be balanced against, you know, basically what are you getting for your money? And, mm-hmm. and you know, not just from the software vendor, but f- across the business as a, as a service. Um, so it, it's it's very interesting, uh, and I think um, I think we'll be having this conversation pretty much the same word for word in a, in five years. Yeah, I think I think there's definitely uh, we we talked about the, sort of the order qualifiers and the order winners earlier. Um, I think that's where Sam should definitely be be heading towards, and not just for fintech, but for all sectors, is to be able to report spend across an IT service as opposed to spend across a software vendor. And, and that way, then, you're, you're empowering your CFO to make those fintech decisions rather like um, uh, Rich just touched on there, that if we spend extra in the cloud, what revenue do we get? So we, we've got a, you know, a, a value chain analysis activity going on through SAM. We had one customer that said they, were, they saved themselves 30 grand a month on Azure costs because they realized on Friday night that five to six PM when their CIO got a call about a P one, he said, Well, we run a nine to five business, so I'll pick it up on Monday. And they had all their servers running twenty four seven. So <laughs> uh the ones they could turn off, they did. And that's where that kind of that kind of governance and, and process side of things sit, I think. Mm. Um just in terms of making sure that people are provisioning stuff. Because it is like I think someone said six clicks and you got yourself you got yourself some uh, AWS stuff which you're then paying for um, so if you make it that easy people are like oh that's good isn't it and, and just to put those governance checks um, in around who, who has that kind of god mode and who has the, the limitations on, on what they can provision what has to go down the 
typical uh, process approvals, right? Route that we we're kind of I guess the legacy side of things um, experiences today. What's worse is you can have Oracle database or SQL Server with six clicks as well, with you know some pretty chunky functionality, yeah, and expensive licensing within. Yeah, pretty dangerous if in the wrong hands. So without ITEM or SAM being a blocker, could we not maybe look towards the cab at provisioning cloud instances so that ITAMs are part of that and can put the processes and governance in place to manage the spend? Is this not ITAM expanding out of ITAM and going into the cab world to not only help realise value, but also manage the costs and govern the risk? It it should be a step. It should be a step in there, certainly. And I think it, you know, maybe it's you know, it's not every change and in instance, but certainly the ones that you know hit a financial threshold should, I think, engage with uh, with a cap. I think the point is you don't necessarily know what the financial risk is, and that's why you need somebody to look at it. So I don't think I don't think it's, I don't think having a financial threshold would be a good gate because that's the whole point of having somebody with ITAM expertise to look at it. Um, and I think we, we did an end user roundtable late last year, I think. And one of the outputs of all these end users coming together, thinking about how they were going to do cloud is they almost needs to be a cloud asset manager, somebody who maybe has asset management experience, but also has expertise and experience at the sort of cadence and the speed of cloud and awareness of how all that works. Um, maybe that's a new role. Maybe that's just an extension of the existing role. I think it's just an it's item evolving, isn't it? It's just an extension of our existing roles. I mean, it's it's interesting because the the way that FinOps is drawn out is a triangle between sort of the C level, the the kind of DevOps teams, and finance. And in the FinOps world, finance do so pretty much everything. They work out what should be deployed, what size, right sizing things, turning things off. Uh, reserved instances what's the best way of paying for it but in a re- you know really that's not finance at all that's ITAM uh, and I think if it's almost the case of turning that triangle into a square and, and making ITAM the, the fourth pillar of, of FinOps um, I think yeah I, I definitely think you know if you look at how quickly DevOps took over the world um, if we can do the same thing by getting ITAM into FinOps We'll, um, we'll, we'll be on, on to a good one. Well, let, let me put this then. Why don't, why don't I put um, ITAM in the centre of that structure? So when we talk to our customers, we, we talk about so the commercial and financial side of, of the stakeholders. You talk to the technical areas of them deploying, managing, and, and testing and keeping the lights on. And then you talk to the kind of end user consumer um what normally happens is those three people don't are not close enough um in alignment to understand the impact of what one does to, to the other so for example someone says okay i've bought uh these new sql licenses um, we've got a massive we've got a great deal on them um and then um the, the kind of operations guys go well, well hang on a minute we we can't support that because we're three bit behind um, and then when it comes to the kind of, I guess, from uh, the item side of things, you've got the bit that says, well, hang on a minute, we we're on processor and now we're on core. So actually, have we really factored that in, in terms of what you deem as a cost saving? And so by putting 
the ITAM in the centre of those three stakeholders. You can start to draw them all together and, and, and give that kind of central hub of advice to those people so they are closer aligned. And that's Danny, are you able to talk about your new role and the title, or is that top secret? No, no, it's not top secret. So my new role is it's um, aligned more with financial teams and it's called service protection manager. So uh, in brackets, ITAM. So I'm looking and protecting the ITAM service with in regards to the rest of the company. So that includes all hardware and software asset management, but with a financial spin. You have the FinOps type. Cool. Um, uh, another bit of news is, uh, I think you found this as well, Stuart, the Microfocus license verification process. Do you want to, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. What, what's that in a nutshell? In one way, it's nice. They've been transparent about what they're doing and they've got this, uh, the license compliance charter. So that makes it sound, uh, good. Yeah. And it just talks through the process that they um, regularly ask their customers, including distributors and retailers, to basically prove their compliance or their views on on what a customer or end user has um, delivered um, from a deployment perspective. It talks about information gathering, verification, and resolution of any licensing issues. Um, as a as a few two stages with about twelve or thirteen points. So yeah, it talks about. Microfocus or one of its representatives. I'm not familiar whether they use any of the big four or any uh, any particular people specifically to do this. They just talk through the process of what I guess a license review or audit, whatever, whichever your your spin is, um, looks like. But I guess some of the the bit that kind of looked kind of jumped out a little bit was that obviously they want a resolution within 30 days. There's a whole host of options which are charging list price. Uh, charging maintenance fees, charging term license fees, charging interest on late payment, or suspension of technical support, or termination of license agreements, or cancellation of a distributor or reseller status where applicable. So they're fairly clear about what the outcomes are going to be. But it's probably just to make people aware, if they're not aware, it sounds like that's this is obviously something that is, is happening fairly fairly widely within I guess the the globe from Microfocus, and just to make um, end users aware that this is uh, probably a, a vendor that if they're not managing efficiently or or well, then it's probably some one that should start to rise up up that list. And I think the other thing is that obviously they've, they've um, been hugely acquisitional in the past, so there's probably lots of vendors that people don't realise are Microfocus now that are Microfocus. The thing that struck me was is actually it's, it's quite good for building the business case for doing ITAM in the first place because uh, none of these things are new, I don't think, but this is very rare that you get them written out like this. So it's like charging the list price um, for unlicensed usage, charging back maintenance for when they think you've not used it, charging the license fees and the interest for what you've been using, um, all of it documented. It's quite It's quite strong, isn't it? I think if you put this in front of your CIO, CFO, and said, look, I need more people to help me manage this. This, this is what's potentially going to happen with one of our key vendors. Like you said, because it's in black and white, it's, it's, it's really good and it's really strong to support the business case. But are any micro-focus audits going to be achieved within 30 days? 
Yeah, no, really. It's no, it's not going to happen. And obviously, if you if you play the game the right way and you understand how to construct a, a proper audit defence as well, um, you're not going to actually allow them to do it in in that sort of time anyway. Um, I mean, speaking from my perspective, I've only ever dealt with one microfocus audit. That was uh, to answer one of Stu's points. That was a a direct audit. Um, there was no third party third party auditor involved on that occasion. Um, they are quite aggressive, as as I think. Um, you know, most people realise who've got experience in microfocus. Um, and I do remember the one thing that really pops into my mind about that is, is arguing with their auditors for quite an extended period of time over their definition of CPUs and cores in the contracts, because uh, that caused quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of aggravation on, on both sides of the fence. So see, previous, uh, see the previous podcast for that. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they've got a global license verification director, so that makes it sound like they do want to keep it as in-house as possible, right? Yeah. As far as I know, they use that they don't have any people in-house. So whenever I've done any microcircus stuff, they've always used an external auditor or tried to use an external auditor, yet there's very few microfocus contracts that are written that actually allow them use of a third-party auditor. And then when you end up asking them to use their own internal auditors, you find that they don't have any. So it automatically ends up going to Seattle. So to me, the whole thing about the 30 days is so that you just share as much information as possible and then they try and you know, uh, figure out how much money they can get off you in that 30 days uh, before they do a runner. So but they, they, that, certainly had, um, they certainly had in-house people in 2016, Danny, I will say that, I mean, which is, which is when I last dealt with one because we were dealing with a, a UK licence verification team. Yeah, so the, the last number that I've done with them, they've never had anyone in the UK um, and maybe they've gotten rid of that. The only people that they had were out in, ended up being in, Seattle, the few people that they thought they, they could end up using um, end up being more or less contractors for them and not microfocus yeah. staff anyhow. Um, so Seattle's where Attachmates um, license verification team historically was located. So yeah, they've, I think uh, they've moved into that together there. Yeah. So, yeah, I was just looking up actually. I just they bought Attachmate, which included Attachmate, NetIQ, Novell, yeah. Suzy, which is now gone. Uh, really again, yeah. Serena is HP Enterprise Software businesses was acquired um progress software so lots of uh balling back in the day um net managed very very back in the early days so yeah there's a lot a lot to contend with there quick question for you i need to move firstly on because we're coming up to the hour uh, a quick question i need to put everyone on the spot okay and this is this is um david foxen's idea so thank you david i would like you to all come up with a percentage number of how many what percentage of the FTSE 100 in the UK, so the, the, the publicly listed top 100 companies in the UK, how many of them have a dedicated SAM person that we can find on LinkedIn? They're using some sort of SAM service or they have a SAM tool. What's your estimate of the FTSE 100? And I'm going to come... How broad can we go? What do you mean? Well, can, I, I would say as an estimate somewhere between um, 25 and 50% max. Okay. Yeah, I'd say about, I'd actually say about 60%. I'd actually say quite a number of the FTSE 100 actually have it. Whether everyone's advertised on that, they actually have it. I'd say a lot more have it than actually advertising. I'd say you should be able to find 60% of them. Okay. Stuart? Well, I would say, I was just saying, well, if you're talking about a SAM person, then I would say... 30, 40%, something like that. If you're saying SAM tool, I would say 
they've probably, I would say a good 75% have probably bought one. They might not be using it to its extent. Um, might be owned by somebody else. Yeah, they might have just bought it and just stuck it in there and gone, there we go. They're not actually driven the value out of that. that. Um, or managed services, um, I guess, probably a good good swathe of those that take some level of managed service whether it's a sound managed service or, or uh, audit defense or call off days whatever it might be so I've, i'm giving you three answers <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah don't, don't want to, it's a good job it's not a sweet steak isn't it yeah <laughs> <laughs> just just so you know Stuart, if you want to stay on this podcast you've got to do better than that mate yeah okay uh 62.8 percent 62.8 yeah Okay, uh, Rory, did we have a number from you? Um, I'm going to go, I think it's... It might Higher be or lower? <laughs> um, I think um, I'm, I'm going to go around 44%. Okay, and Rich? 24. 24, okay. David, have you got a number? Well, no, because I've been doing the research, so... I hope you've got a number, Dave. You have to guess anyway, Dave, just for the laugh. Yeah, yeah. do. Dave, just out of interest, in the, in the best traditions of ITAM research, are you going to charge us for access to this report? <laughs> yes, $5,000. Jargon Buster, moving on to our next section. Like, Jargon Buster. <laughs> Jargon Buster! Uh, what is a... I, I've been told this is too easy, but I'd like to share it anyway. What is a client access license? Anyone care to elaborate in succinct terms as possible? What is a client access license? Or this is one for Rich, surely. Well, it's imaginary for a start. Um, so, bit, so, you know, basically anything, any client, be that a user or a device or a thermometer, or, you know, anything that is going to access uh, software on a server so you know your your exchange your sql your oracle db anything like that if a client is going to access it it's going to need a client access license so so typically you know it would be all your users or all your devices or a combination thereof um so if you've not got any cows you definitely should have um and i think that it's the the tracking them with a tool that is difficult because as far as i know no tool can can pick them up because nothing is installed um it, it's as i say it, it's a kind of a made-up concept um but you, but you have to have them so i think correct me if i'm wrong are there any tools that can that can manage cows anyone nah, not, not that i'm aware of I thought the easiest way to do it was via something like AD groups to say, you know, these this group has access to this and therefore we need, need that many cows. But if that group yeah, but, hasn't been tidied up for the last 12 years... Well, that's the same That's the same with any ITAM practice, isn't it? It's housekeeping. Yeah, that's true. And plus what you, what you may find as well, of course, your AD groups will, will track the, the individuals. It won't track the forklift trucks or the thermometers in the, you know, in the right. refrigeration unit unless you create a group for them. Um, you could, you could, in theory, create a dash two tag for the cow and then count the dash two tags. Dun, dun, dun. He loves, he loves those dash twos, doesn't he? <laughs> I tell you, they're the future. So uh, that's a way around it, I suppose. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I think they're always, you know, set, maybe not so much these days, but not that long ago, it was always on on an audit, you know people would be under on their cows somehow 
Mm. Um, especially if you're licensed by device, you know, anything that's licensed by device becomes difficult. Uh, you know, you've got laptops and mobiles and thermometers and forklifts, like Rory said, and watches and all that kind of thing. You know, they they potentially all need licensing. Um, so I, th I think user cows wherever possible make things a bit easier. Um, but but yeah, the, the I think it is quite a simple concept to know what a cal is. But I certainly don't think it's simple to to make sure you're hundred percent compliant with it across all the vendors. Uh, I think most vendors have got their own you know version of a cal, um, and I think they're all as as difficult to track as as the other ones. Um, I don't understand why vendors can't just install a little agent or something. Um, you know that the technology is there, so so, so who knows their reasons for not doing it. Um, could so, argue that of every single licensing scheme though couldn't you rich microsoft oh, yeah. could have done that 20 years ago and you wouldn't have a job doing what you do but their attitude and same with oracle is to say we want to give people the access to the technology we don't want to limit their use and it's yeah. all laissez-faire laissez or whatever the word is um it's all relaxed we don't want to put barriers in place they could have done it 20 years ago if they wanted to yeah yeah. Um, so yeah. So I think yeah. Simple, simple to uh, to understand, perhaps, but difficult to manage. And if, if there's anyone that wants to come on the podcast and describe exactly how they're managing cows uh, efficiently, we would love to hear from you. Uh, final section. Job of the week. Are we allowed to mention Barry that you wrote this um, description? Partially wrote. I I I, uh, I didn't write the original description. I just looked at it and edited it afterwards. Okay. Are we allowed to mention that? Well, you have. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be but honest, I, know, I, 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 I have gone through the editing suite yet, Barry. Yeah, I, I, I have not to about too much of them. What you got to be clear on though is that I I can't actually say too much about this because I'm under NDA. So. so. Okay, we'll tiptoe our way through this one. I thought it was, um, I'm not blowing smoke up your whatever. It's, um, I thought it was really well written and it looks like a really compelling role and it looks um, like a good salary package as well. Like it's in the right bracket, for, especially for where it is. And um, yeah, it looks good. Anyone else had a look at this one? Sorry, this is um, IT Asset Manager at Cambridge Assessment which is a um, education sector company based out of Cambridge in the UK. So, so like, just for, for context, they um, run assessments and create assessments and exams for all sorts of organizations internationally. And, and some of the brands that come with it fall under them are OCR is a brand that comes under Cambridge assessment. You've got Cambridge International English. Um, so there's quite a few big brands that and assessment brands that actually come under them and they create the exams and do the marking schemes and all that sort of stuff. Just out of interest, why do these kind of roles require a degree? That's a great question. I mean, you do see that in a lot of, a lot of job descriptions, don't you? Um, I don't know if it's a staple that people expect these days. Um, you know, it's, it's something you see in almost every permanent um, job role now. Um, personally, I've never found it... Um, a particular handicap because I, I don't have a degree um, but obviously demonstrating experience is, is for me that's where the value is isn't it yeah I don't know I, I was chatting to someone the other day one of our uh, uh, 
contacted a vendor actually and we were talking about this and you know he said very much the same thing you know kind of i don't see the point of what that gives you i guess there's a almost a de facto well i've got to have a degree because that then demonstrates they've got some sort of structure and willingness to learn and all those things that people um, associate with a degree person but because so many people go to university um it doesn't differentiate in, in the way it used to about 20 years ago um and even that's probably a bit probably 25 years ago um so yeah i guess it's just the default the default i mean is, it, is this associated to the um, university at all well it's it, it is not it's actually well so Cambridge Assessment is part of the wider university, but the IT asset management function, the IT function there is, is limited to Cambridge Assessment itself. So the university has its own IT function. Uh, and right. and I think the, the older you get, the less it matters because it's, it's a litmus test. It's, a, it's almost like a filter for when, when you're younger to determine, you know, it's, it's a way of eliminating people, I guess. It's a discrim way of discriminating other, but I think the older you get, if, if somebody rocked up to this uh, opportunity with a great experience, I think, I don't know whether they'd overlook it, but I think it'd be foolish if they did overlook somebody without a degree. I agree. Yeah, I'm, I'm like you, Barry. I, I, I didn't go to university either. Well, I went to visit friends, but not to... feeling, mate. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think as soon as you turn up to a job that says you need a degree and then they look at your your cv and you've got some decent experience i think in my well in my experience it does get kind of oh well it's kind of a nice to have then shall we say you know once they look at the other bits but yeah probably to your point martin that's how they um are able to differentiate between the different types of candidate they want thank you folks for joining the podcast thank you very much for your time and your input and uh, look forward to catching up with you next time cheers guys Bye. cheers everyone all the best take care Oh, eat, oh, eat, oh.